We're going to get started. Our next session is a real treat. Dr. DePuy will do artifacts. So pay attention. This stuff um, always shows up on the exam, and it also will help you in clinical practice how to recognize and understand why those artifacts are there and how to, um, to both recognize them and figure out uh, how to correct for them. So this will be a whirlwind tour in the next 65 minutes, so we'll do artifact recognition. Thanks, Donna. This is an old talk, although I have, I do periodically update it, and actually there's some updates that aren't in your syllabus that'll be on the talk. Uh, but it's always good to uh, remember these things, and again, it's a definitely something that shows up on the exam. So, let's start with instrumentation-related artifacts. Uh, flood field non-uniformity. Uh, Lindsay uh, reviewed a number of these things during his talk, but let's just revisit it. Uh, this is a typical flood field uh, up on the upper right, and if you look at this visually, seems to be sort of hotter pixels in the center. So you might question this. Well, all of the vendors have some sort of quantitative analysis of the flood fields to tell you the uh, differential and the integral uniformity. Uh, this is one of the methods. This, this camera just shows, this method just shows pixels that are more than one standard deviation below the mean and one standard deviation above the mean. And you can see this cluster of relatively hot pixels right in the center of the field of view. And that indicates a photomultiplier tube that has increased gain. And that's going to create some sort of artifact in your image. Now, if you are doing a planar image, let's say you're doing a liver scan, it's pretty easy to figure it out. If you have increased counts from a photomultiplier tube, you're going to have a hot spot in the liver. If you have decreased counts, you're going to have a cold spot in the liver. And I've just diagrammed this here. This is a, you know, two photomultiplier tubes that have low counts, and here's maybe a little crack in the crystal. So this is pretty simple. But what happens when we do SPECT imaging, either using a 360 or 180 degree acquisition, these focal defects are propagated into rings, and they create what are called ring artifacts, either hot rings or cold rings. The problem is, is if these rings pass through our organ of interest, i.e. the myocardium, they are going to create streaks or defects within the myocardium that can be easily misconstrued as true perfusion abnormalities. Now, a favorite question I like to ask our trainees is, are they going to produce fixed defects or reversible defects? Well, the, answer, the easy answer is, well, this is just an instrumentation thing. It's in the camera, so obviously nothing changes from stress to rest, so it's got to be fixed defects. Well, not usually, because when the technologist positions the patient under the camera, very seldom is the heart exactly in the same place in the field of view. The heart might be a little bit higher or a little bit lower, which is perfectly okay. But 
that means that these streaks or rings are going to go through different areas of the myocardium and change from stress to rest and thereby produce reversible or pseudo-ischemic artifacts. So that's one of, these re one of the reasons why flood field uniformity is a particularly dangerous artifact is that it can produce reversible artifacts that mimic ischemia. Okay, here's a little experiment. Uh, here's a, it's, this is a single uh, crystal camera, a single uh, headed camera rather. And here we've, to ask a patient who had a completely normal study to volunteer to have a repeat acquisition. And here we taped over a little lead marker over top of where the heart is, and you can see it passes right over top of the heart. And this simulates a defective photomultiplier tube. Well, here's our reconstructed transaxial images. You don't generally review these, but you can create transaxial images just like a CT scan. And lo and behold, here are this, here's this cold ring and actually an adjacent hot ring that passes right through the left ventricle. Now, when we reorient the heart, into our vertical long axis image, this ring sort of passes in and out of the screen and eclipses or cuts through the infraapical region. Here in the transaxial view, it's cutting, I mean, excuse me, the um, horizontal long axis view, it's cutting through the apex. And here in this short axis view, you don't really see it. So when we reconstruct these images, and remember, this is in a lady who had a completely normal study here we go, here we have this rather severe infraapical defect. Now, if you were just sitting down one afternoon reading studies and you saw this defect, you'd be very concerned that this was, of course, a true perfusion abnormality. But it's not, it's just a artifact created by a defective photomultiplier tube. So, that means that we wanna check our flood fields on a, a routine, regular basis. And the requirements are is that you check the flood field of each head of each camera every morning. This is part of your routine quality control. Now this is generally inspected by the technologist or the physicist. In New York City, it's actually a requirement that a physician review the flood fields. So we have 14 cameras, which means 28 flood fields. So one of our physicians has to review 28 flood fields every morning, but it needs to be done. The other thing is, remember that photomultiplier tubes don't necessarily have to go out overnight. They can go out in the middle of the day just as easily. So your morning studies might look great, and then suddenly in your afternoon, you wind up getting defects in your images because a photomultiplier tube has gone out. So you've got to be constantly vigilant, and the technologist has to be constantly vigilant in looking at your planar images to see if there are hot or cold spots that could represent defective photomultiplier tubes. And of course, if you see that, stop what you're doing, reacquire your flood, and if you need to get a photomultiplier tube recalibrated, call in your serviceman. Another problem related to instrumentation is the center of rotation. Now you know what the COR is, is your camera acquires images all around the patient. 
And what the center of rotation does is it basically allows you to back project these images into a central point in your volumetric matrix and recreate points or recreate images. If the center of rotation is off, some of these images, when the camera first starts to rotate, are going to be back projected at one location, and as the camera rotates around to the other side of the patient, images are going to be back projected in a different location. And so your images are going to be misregistered and your reconstructed tomograms are going to be skewed. So here's the principle. Some of the data are back projected at one location and other data are back projected at a different location. Now when you add up these images in the process of spec reconstruction, instead of getting a nice little donut, you get something that looks like that. Now what are the characteristics? First, the cavity is not circular, it's oblong. Next, there appears to be defects in opposed sides of the left ventricle, in this case the anteroseptal and the, uh, excuse me, anterolateral and infraseptal walls. And then lastly, there are these streaks of activity that extend off the edges of the defect. So this is characteristic of image misalignment, in this case due to a COR error. This is a phantom study. This is with the data spectrum phantom. This is a phantom filled with technetium and imaged with a correct center of rotation. Looks pretty uniform. This side is a little hotter because the camera's closer to this side of the phantom. This is with a single pixel COR offset, two pixels, and three pixels. And just as I mentioned, the cavity now becomes oblong. There appears to be opposed defects, and there tends to be streaks coming off the edges of the defects. Now again, had you been reading this study clinically, we would have been arguing whether this was a first diagonal or the LAD or infra, you know, OM3 or the RCA but the answer is none of the above. They're just artifacts due to an erroneous center of rotation. So back when we had cantilevered camera heads, it was recommended that you do a COR every week. Now that we have cameras that are more stationary and aren't cantilevered, the requirements vary maybe every two weeks, maybe every month depending upon the vendor. But the important thing is that you do the center of rotation because it definitely can drift. And uh, as I showed you that if you have an erroneous center of rotation, you have to call your serviceman in and um, get the camera uh, recalibrated. Another instrumentation error sort of related is camera head misalignment. Now, if you have two detectors that are cemented together, let's say like in the CardioMD camera or the GE Optima camera, they're not going to become misaligned. They're stuck together. But if you have a camera where the two heads can rotate or move independently, let's say like the GEMG camera, one of the heads can get misaligned. Let's say if something bumps into the camera, like a stretcher or a patient hits the camera, and therefore 
some of the data from that one head are going to be back projected in one direction and data from the other head are going to be back projected in a different direction and you're going to get a physical misalignment or misregistration of your image. Here's an example. This study was done a long time ago on a picker prism camera. This is a three-headed detector. And this is the acquisition. This is not a phantom. This is a real heart doesn't get any better than that. Nice uniform tracer distribution. Now this is what happened when one of the camera heads got misaligned by about 10 degrees. Actually looking at the camera you couldn't see it. It looked just fine. But look what happens. That data are being back projected erroneously and you wind up with one, two, three perfusion abnormalities it's because it's a three-headed camera. But very easily, this could simulate multivessel coronary disease just because one of the heads is off. So you need to check your camera head alignment on a regular basis. And this is done by your physicist or by your service that you know takes care of your instrumentation. But it's also something very easy that you can do. You know, it's like some patient knocks on the camera head and you say, my gosh, is the camera head misaligned? This is something you can do. What you do is you put the camera facing the ceiling. That generally is zero degrees in the acquisition. It varies with vendors. So the camera head is at zero degrees. You put a carpenter's level on top of the camera and the bubble should be right in the middle of the carpenter's level. And if it is, the camera head is aligned. If the bubble is off, the camera head is misaligned. And of course you want to do it in this direction and that direction. It takes about five minutes and you can assure yourself that your camera head is aligned correctly. Okay, uh, patient-related artifacts. Now these are ones that you see more frequently if you are an, an astute observer and a good reader. Okay, one of them is patient motion. Okay, this is again our data spectrum phantom. In this case, it's filled with thallium and immersed in a background bath of low-level activity. And this is with no motion. This is one pixel, two pixels, and three pixels of motion in the vertical direction, the Y direction, with the camera at the LAO position. So the camera is sort of right in the center of the acquisition and the phantom moved by one or more pixels in the Y direction. And what do we see? Well, looks sort of familiar. We have these opposed defects and we have these streaks of activity that extend off the edge of the defects. Where did we see this before? Center of rotation error, right? Well, let's think of it, they're related. With the center of rotation, the patient is nice and still, but during the first part of the acquisition, data are back projected here, and because of an electronic error during the second half of the acquisition, data are projected differently, and you get misregistration. What happens when patient moves? Well, the patient's nice and steady during the first half of the acquisition, data are acquired, and back projected at one location. Then let's say the patient moves up. Well, now during this part of the acquisition, data are acquired and back projected differently. So a COR error and patient motion 
are very much related. They're related to faulty back projection of data. One because of the electronics of the camera and the other because of patient motion. The difference is, is that a COR error is very predictable. You can figure out how the image is going to be affected. The trouble is with patient motion, patients move at all different times and in all different directions and maybe in multiple times in multiple directions, so the errors are extremely more variable. Let's take this example. There we go. Rotating image. Right during the middle of the, this is a single-headed acquisition. Whoop, patient takes a trip north in the y direction, maybe about three pixels. Y direction motion. All right? And these are the resulting images. With Y direction motion, we wind up with opposed defects in the anterior and inferior walls. Y direction motion artifact. And what do we see? Well, we see these opposed defects. We see an oblong left ventricular cavity and these streaks of activity that extend off the edges of the defect, very much like the COR error. Someone has coined this the hurricane sign. It looks like a rotating low pressure area. Now, just a reminder, quantitative analysis is quite valuable, and you hear about it in this course and research and so forth but it only tends to accentuate artifacts. Remember, the gender match normal files assume a normal distribution. Well, if you have coronary disease, you depart from that normal distribution. But if you move, you depart from the normal distribution. If you have a photomultiplier tube defect, you depart from the normal distribution. So here's the quantitative analysis in this patient who just moved, and it looks like the patient's got a huge anterior apical and inferior defect. But this is just motion artifact. So, we now have motion correction. What motion correction does is it basically creates a linogram of the heart. In other words, it's the summed images from the LAO to the RAO projection. And it determines the anterior and inferior borders of the heart. And these should be exactly horizontal. When the heart moves downward, in this case gradually, but it could be abruptly, it notes that and it shifts the frame upward. So now the heart is aligned horizontally. So it's gonna shift all these frames upward. And this is the motion corrected linogram. Now you can see the anterior inferior walls of the heart are horizontal. So this is a motion corrected image. And in that patient that I just showed you with the hurricane sign, now here are the corrected images and they look just fine. Generally it's recommended that if you have more than two pixels of motion that you don't apply motion correction because it may not work. Eh, maybe yes, maybe no but you should always try to apply motion correction. If it works and the heart is now nice and steady during the acquisition, good, you, you've done a good job. But if with motion correction there still appears to be patient motion, 
You've got to reacquire the study. So that means that the technologist must perform motion correction and inspect the motion corrected images before the patient leaves the lab, or ideally before the patient gets off the table. In my lab, there is no excuse for motion in a study. Either you motion corrected the study or you reacquired. The only excuse is if the patient refused to have another acquisition. Then you're sort of stuck with the study with motion. All right. Multi-headed cameras have been very advantageous in decreasing patient motion artifact. Now the studies can be acquired in half the time using a two-headed camera, and so there's much less opportunity for the patient to move. However, if the patient does move, the problems with motion artifacts get compounded. And here I've diagrammed this, okay? Here we have patient being acquired with a single detector image. Right in the middle of the acquisition, the patient moves up. So there's one episode of motion. What happens if we have a 90 degree angled two detector system? Well, during the acquisition, the patient moves up, detector one sees it, and simultaneously, detector two sees it. Then when the detectors join, there's a sort of correction going from the end of the acquisition to the beginning of the acquisition. So one episode of motion has now turned into three episodes of motion with a two-headed detector system. And if you have a three-headed detector system, do the math. So things get compounded. Okay, some examples. All right. Well, here's a two-headed camera, 90-degree angled camera. Well, it looks like, just like the first case example, looked like the patient moved, in this case downward, right during the middle of the acquisition. But the patient did not move abruptly. What happened? If you look very carefully, the heart is drifting upward. It goes down, drifts upward, up, down, and up again. What's happened? This is what's happened. During the acquisition, the patient has drifted upward. If it was a single-headed detector, you probably wouldn't have seen it. But with a two-headed detector, the first head sees the upward drift. Simultaneously, the second head sees the upward drift. But where the detectors join, there's a correction going from the end of the acquisition to the beginning of the acquisition, and you see this abrupt motion. So this is due to patient drift, in this case, upward creep or upward drift. A lot of people see this and they say, oh my goodness, there's something wrong between the two heads of the camera. Call in the service guy. There's the camera heads are, you know, not correctly aligned or something. It's not. It's the patient's moving. Now, why does this occur? Well, back in the old days when we did exercise thallium imaging, well, the patient would exercise, get injected with thallium, and you know that with thallium, you've got to get the patient under the detector in five minutes, or thallium's going to start to redistribute. Well, five minutes after exercise, if you're like me, you're still huffing and puffing and you're breathing deeply and your diaphragm is pushed down and your heart lies low in the thorax. Well, during the acquisition, the depth of respiration progressively decreases. 
the diaphragm moves up and the heart creeps up. So this was called by Jamshid Madahi initially diaphragmatic creep and it occurred early after an exercise thallium study. And so that's why it's recommended that you wait for 10 minutes after exercise to acquire your thallium studies, or at least be sure that the patient's respiratory rate has returned to normal before you start acquiring. Well, then we switched over to technetium, and of course, now we can't image until 35, 40 minutes after we inject tetraphosmin or sestamibi. So after exercise, the patient's heart uh, respiratory depth and rate have returned to normal. So this diaphragmatic creep is generally no longer a problem. But we still see this upward creeping of the patient. Well, why does that occur? It's because the patient is actually moving. The patient might be stretching because they're uncomfortable, or more frequently, they're pushing up on the imaging palette with their little rubber-soled sneakers to get their back more comfortable, and they actually do move up or occasionally move down on the palate. So this is actually upward patient gradual motion during the acquisition causing this. Well, whatever it is, this is the problem. The patient didn't move in the resting study, but they did move, like I showed you, in the stress, and we have Y-direction motion artifact, just like the previous patient, not quite as severe, opposed anterior and inferior defects, sort of this weird looking left ventricular cavity. And again, if we do quantitative analysis, it looks like this patient has got LAD and RCA extensive severe ischemia because of this motion artifact. Okay, another motion artifact is seen here. This is a single-headed acquisition. Follow this patient around. There you go. Looking good. X-direction motion. Looks like the patient's taking a trip out to the west coast right there. All right. X-direction motion. Why does this occur? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is that during the acquisition, the camera head comes close to the patient and the patient says, whoa, you know, then moves over to the side. So the patient is actually moving in the X direction. A more common reason is the patient turns around. They turn their head, unless you're very flexible, your chest turns with you, looking at the technologist, looking out the window, whatever. And so this creates this X direction motion. This is a very bad kind of motion. It creates severe artifacts. Where are the artifacts? Well, not in the anterior and inferior wall, like Y-direction motion, but they occur in the lateral wall and septum, just like you see here. And, well, let me, uh, I guess I can't go back, but uh, so what do you do? Well, you can try motion correction. Uh, Many people have said that motion correction doesn't work in the X direction. I don't believe that. I think it does work in the X direction. It doesn't work as well as Y direction motion. So it's a very difficult um, 
situation because x-direction motion is harder to see visually. Technologists frequently miss it. And also it's more difficult to correct. And it creates more severe artifacts than y-direction motion. So just be aware of that. So I'm showing you this case. And this is a more real live clinical case of what often happens. And this is a patient who uh, was very agitated and not very cooperative, really had a hard time staying still in both the stress and rest acquisitions. And just look at this study. Well, there looks like a reversible inferior defect here. There's sort of this weird anterolateral defect. But if you look at it, look at the epicardial border. See how irregular the epicardial border is, both at stress and rest, all these bulges sticking out? Well, unless the patient's got, you know, rhabdomyomas in the heart, you know, these are artifacts, and they're most frequently caused by patient motion. And like I said, motion artifacts occur many times in motion in different directions, and they can be variable. So whenever you have a study that looks like this with this lumpy, bumpy appearance of the epicardial border, you can be pretty sure that it's due to multiple episodes of patient motion, and I would feel very reluctant to actually read this study. Okay, processing-related artifacts. All right, processing is a really important part of um, a myocardial perfusion scan. And vendor programs are pretty good, but as with any computer algorithm, not perfect. Uh, in my lab, I process probably about 80% of the studies myself. It's very easy to do, and you can be sure that it's done correctly. It varies. We have one lab where the processing is pretty much perfect. We have another lab, it's probably wrong about 70% of the time. So don't just trust any technologist to process every study correctly. All the things that have to be done, you have to identify the center of the left ventricle. You have to identify a myocardial radius of search that detects the epicardial border of the ventricle in order to form polar plots and thus quantitative analysis. You have to select the apical and basal myocardial limits. Talk more about that later. And you have to select the left ventricular axis. All those things are critical. So let's look at some of these. All right. This happens to be Emory toolbox processing. Here you set, select the center of the left ventricular cavity. You select the limiting radius of search for the epicardial border. That's where they go out and select the limits for the polar map reconstruction. You select the apical and basal limits of the left ventricular myocardium. and You do that in the, in the vertical long axis slice and also either in the horizontal or transaxial slice. Okay, Stress and rest. And that gives you your reconstructed tomograms that are correct. Look what happens here. The apical limit, sort of lazy technologists, sort of forgot to set the apical limits. So the apical limits at stress extend far out beyond the true apex of the left ventricle, whereas in the resting study, the apical limit is set correctly. And here's your resulting polar plot. Uh, here the apical limits are set too far past the real apex, and you wind up with a large apical perfusion defect 
that appears to be reversible, and here it is showing up in the difference or ischemic plot. So you've got to be really careful in setting those limits. You can run into problems when you have no myocardium. Where do they select the limits? One of the regions is always at the base. It's always tricky to set the basal limits. But here's a case. This is a patient who has an apical infarct. Well, this happens to be, they're both the stress acquisitions. Well, in this case, this is what the computer did. It selected the apical limits where the myocardium appeared to end and gave you a pretty normal looking polar plot. But what you have to do is you have to arbitrarily move that limit outward to where you think the apex ends, and now you have correctly identified that large apical perfusion defect in the polar plot. So common error. This is another common error. As I mentioned, it's hard to define the base of the ventricle. And so here in the stress image, it looks like there's this big rim. Whoops. Can we go backwards? I don't know if I can do that here. Yeah, oh, just like that. Good. Um, there seems to be this rim of absent myocardium. It's because the basal limits were selected too far behind the valve plane. And it happened at stress, but not at rest. And it looks like we have a reversible basal perfusion abnormality because of errors in defining the left ventricular base. All right, as I mentioned, selection of the apical and basal limits is very critical because the apical and basal limits define your short axis tomograms, the limit of your short axis tomograms. Also, using the, what you've selected as the apex and base, you can create, you create your polar maps and also your three-dimensional displays. Your quantitative analysis is done from these polar plots by comparing patient data to gender-matched normal limits. And with your quantitative analysis, you determine defect extent, defect severity, and defect reversibility. So all of your quantitative analysis of perfusion depends upon the correct selection of the apex and base. Also, from the base and the apex, you determine your left ventricular volumes. From your volumes, you get your ejection fraction. From that, from your volumes, you also get your TID ratio. So virtually everything we do quantitatively is determined by correct selection of the apical and basal limits. So that's why in the vendor displays, at least most of them, the first screen that comes up for you to review is the processed data that includes the axes and the basal and apical limits that have been selected. So don't just skip over that screen. Look at that screen to make sure that the limits have been done correctly. And if they haven't, reprocess the study yourself or ask your technologist to reprocess the scan. Here's a problem with the axis of the left ventricle. Here I've drawn in a transaxial slice with a perfusion defect in the distal lateral wall. Okay, So here is the correct long axis of the left ventricle, and we construct perpendiculars to create our short axis slices. And so here's a perpendicular going through the apical region, and here we have the perfusion defect. 
Here we go through the midventricular region. We have a nice normal myocardium and a nice round left ventricular cavity. And here's a slice at the base that shows the defect due to the membranous septum, but otherwise normal myocardium. Well, let's just tilt that axis by about 10 degrees. Not a big change. Now, our apical slice doesn't really go through the defect. It appears to go through partially normal myocardium. Here, the mid-slice sort of goes obliquely through the left ventricle, creating an oblong left ventricular cavity. And here, the basal slice gets the muscular septum, so that looks normal. And here, we're back into the left atrium, defect in the lateral wall. So you can see that a change in axis selection can really, really affect the appearance of your heart. Well, just imagine, had this been the stress study and this been the resting study, you would have had a reversible lateral defect, a reversible septal defect, and an area of reverse distribution in the basal lateral wall. So little changes in axis can create big changes in your perfusion images. So you really need to always check your axes. A little hint that you get uh, sometimes if your axis is wrong, and this is a really far out egregious example, is that the base of the heart <coughs> doesn't go through the valve plane, it goes through the lateral wall. And in your vertical long axis view, you sort of have a closed wall at the base. Extreme example. And you can see this in your vertical long axis images here. Another key that you have your axis selected incorrectly is that the vertical long axis study, excuse me, the horizontal long axis study, instead of with having the apex pointing direct, directly north, it's tilted. Whenever you have this tilted axis, you know that your uh, tilted image, you know that your axis has been selected incorrectly. In this case, the same error has been made for stress and rest. But if your axis points one way at stress and a different way at rest, you're really in big trouble and you're going to wind up having pseudo-reversible defects. Here's an example. Stress and rest perfusion images, short axis slices. Stress images look just beautiful until we get to the very base and that's the membranous septum. Looks great. Look at rest. Suddenly here, the cavity looks oblong, and we get this perfusion defect down here towards the base of the infraseptal wall. Really weird. The reason is, is obviously the axis was selected oblique to the long axis of the left ventricle. And so here, we're slicing through sort of the base of the membranous septum rather than the left ventricle. And again, get this oblong cavity. Well, just imagine had this been the stress study and this been the resting study, you would have called TID and a severe infraseptal uh, ischemic defect. It's not a perfusion defect at all. It's just error in the axis selection. So what you do is go back and reprocess the study, and now you see that defect has gone away now that you've selected the axes correctly. Okay, next problem we have is tracer avid structures adjacent to the left ventricle. And these include the liver, 
the stomach, and the small bowel. Three different areas that take up thallium, tetraphosmin, and sestamibi. Now what are the problems we encounter if we have activity adjacent to the heart? Well, the first one is the Compton scatter artifact. Okay. So let's just say we have activity in the left lobe of the liver that is immediately below the left ventricle. All right, photons from the left lobe are heading north, and they encounter soft tissue, and they get scattered right into the parallel hole collimator, okay? You'd say, no problem. We can eliminate these photons because of our energy window. We put our nice plus minus 15% window over the 140 keV photopeak. We know that in the process of Compton scatter, these photons have lost energy and they will fall below the window and we'll eliminate them. No problem. Well, don't be so sure. As it turns out, a photon can scatter by 50 degrees and still not lose enough energy to be eliminated using a 15 to 20% window over the 140 keV photopeak. So, these Compton scattered photons are going to be accepted by the camera. And what happens to them in the process of reconstruction? They get back projected right over the inferior wall of the left ventricle. That's what causes the Compton scatter artifact, is these scattered photons being back projected over the inferior wall. Well, what are the circumstances that are going to exacerbate this problem? One, a wider energy window. That's why we encourage you to stick to the 15% energy window. Number two, more soft tissue, more opportunities for soft tissue scatter. An obese patient, more Compton scatter. Another factor is the camera being further away from the patient. Obviously, if the camera is right close to the chest, the angle of scatter has got to be a lot more abrupt. The further away the camera, the narrower the angle of Compton scatter that you will accept. All three of those exacerbate the Compton scatter artifact. Here's an example. This activity is probably in the left lobe of the liver. It looks like it's overlapping the inferior wall. Well, we have plenty good resolution to separate the left lobe of the liver from the heart. But these are photons that have been scattered by soft tissue and are now back projected over the inferior wall, creating the Compton scatter artifact. Clearly, we're not able to assess the inferior wall because of this artifact. If we do quantitative analysis, the image gets normalized to the hot inferior wall. It looks like 90% of the ventricle is ischemic. All right, this slide is not in your syllabus. Uh, here is, uh, how do we get rid of this problem? Well, it depends where the activity is. If we have activity in the liver, this is one of these patients that got, has a left lobe of the liver that extends all the way over to the left abdominal wall, 
way under the heart, very intense activity. Well, clearly the inferior wall is not interpretable. What do we do to get rid of activity from the liver? We wait and just let the liver excrete it. You can give a fatty meal and it slightly improves the excretion, but the best thing to do is just wait. So we waited for two hours. It's gone. Absolutely beautiful images, completely normal. So getting rid of liver activity that's creating Compton scatter, you wait. All right? Ramp filter artifact. All right, this is the other artifact that's caused by subdiaphragmatic activity. All right, you've heard earlier in this course is with filtered back projection, basically what we do is we take all of our angular projections and we back project them using our center of rotation and form a point or an object. That's how it works. But in that process, we have these ugly reconstruction rays. The fewer the angles of acquisition, the worse the ray artifacts. This is called the ray artifact. So as part of filtered back projection, we apply the ramp filter. It finds the hot object, and it multiplies pixels around the hot object by a factor of less than one, basically erasing out these ugly rays and relegating them to the periphery of the image. So now we have a nice sharp image to read. Sounds like a good idea. The problem is if the hot object doesn't happen to be the heart, but let's say in this case the stomach, this subtraction subtracts out the rays, but it also subtracts out activity from the adjacent inferior wall of the left ventricle, thus the ramp filter artifact. Here's an example. Stress images look perfectly normal. Resting images have all this activity in the stomach. Now, it turns out that the ramp filter operates exclusively in the x-plane across the image. It doesn't operate in the y-plane. So here in the x-plane, here we've wiped out this activity. This is not a subtle artifact. This is a common and very marked artifact. And here we have this big perfusion defect. Just imagine, had this been the stress study, and this been the resting study, we would have called marked inferior ischemia. If you reconstruct these with the polar plot, here the stress looks normal. Here we have the ramp filter artifact in the resting images. So, the second area that accumulates activity is the stomach, like in this case. What do we do to prevent stomach activity and to get rid of stomach activity? Well, as you know, the tracer gets excreted by the liver into the biliary tract, into the duodenum, and it refluxes back into the stomach, duodenogastric reflux. This happens in a lot of many, many patients, maybe over 50% of patients. So what you do is you try to prevent this from happening. So right after you give the tracer injection, either at stress or at rest, 
you give the patient a big 16-ounce glass of water to drink. The water is moving downstream from the stomach into the duodenum, moving down. And so, just like the little salmon, it's a hard, it's very difficult for these technetium molecules to move upstream back into the stomach. So this prevents the duodenogastric reflux. In some patients, despite that maneuver, you still get duodenogastric reflux. Well, what do you do? You give the patient more water and ask them to walk around. And this generally will empty the stomach. In really extreme cases, you can give the patient intravenous reglin, and that will cause the stomach to contract to get rid of this activity. So here's an example. This is a study that's got all this stomach activity. In the X-plane, we have this defect. Is it real or is it the RAM filter artifact? We give the patient 16 ounces of water, have them walk around the department, and the defect goes away. This little decrease is just due to diaphragmatic attenuation. All right, here's another example. Uh, this is liver activity, similar to the one that I showed you before, but in this case, it's not causing scatter, it's causing the ramp filter artifact. Here, the left lobe of the liver is in the X-plane of the inferior wall. Very hot liver. Here we waited two hours, gone away, liver activity, and so is the artifact. So water and time are the ways to eliminate subdiaphragmatic activity. Time to eliminate liver activity, water to eliminate gastric activity. If you've got activity in the small bowel, it's a little more difficult, but generally water will work. Where things are difficult is if you have activity in the hepatic flex, excuse me, the splenic flexure of the colon. There, it's a lot more difficult. If the patient has rapid bowel transit, and by the time you image, you've got activity in the um, splenic flexure, that's a little difficult to get rid of. Okay, image normalization. This is sort of a no-brainer, but it's worth going over. All right. If in your frame you have hot activity, in this case here we have this activity in the left lobe of the liver, what happens is the image gets normalized to the hottest area in the frame, and not in just an individual frame, in the whole volume that you've selected in the frame. And so here the hottest spot is felt to be the stomach, and therefore the heart looks generally decreased in activity. That didn't happen in the resting study. So it looks like the whole heart has decreased activity at stress as compared to rest. Well, what does this mean? Global ischemia? No, it doesn't mean global ischemia. It means that you're normalizing your image to this hot liver activity. So what you need to do is you need to arbitrarily increase the intensity of your image. Now this is tricky because obviously you can dial away a defect or you can dial in a defect, but try to normalize your image to the most normal area of the myocardium. Now the newer cameras and software systems just grab the epicardial border of the heart and this normalization problem is less uh, frequent. 
but in the older systems, they normalize to the entire frame. And so any hot spot, any hot activity that is in the frame that you've selected will create this normalization problem. So the frequency of this problem depends upon the vintage of your camera. So if you have an image like this, whenever I see a report that says, there is diffusely decreased activity throughout the entire myocardium at stress that reverses in the resting image consistent with global ischemia, like dot, dot, dot. This person has no clue. It's just a normalization problem. You can't read global ischemia from looking at the intensity of the stress versus the rest image. Okay, soft tissue attenuation. We have Attenuation by breast, the left hemidiaphragm, and lateral chest wall fat. All will create attenuation artifacts. The breast, look at the rotating image. This patient is obviously very obese, but look where the breast shadow is crossing over the heart. You see this shadow, the photopenic shadow, crossing over the anterior wall of the left ventricle. You can pretty much predict where your artifact is going to be based upon the shadow. Okay, And here are the reconstructed images. Indeed, we have a decrease in activity throughout the anterior wall. Here you see the same thing in the short axis images. Notice what happens is this defect looks worse in the resting images. This is a low, low activity rest, high activity stress. For some reason, we wrote a paper on this, but I still don't quite understand it. With lower count density images, attenuation artifacts are accentuated. So here we have this, quote, pseudo-reverse distribution. This is the most frequent cause of reverse distribution, is attenuation artifacts. Defect looks worse at rest than it does at stress. This is a good clue that you're dealing with an attenuation artifact. And here you see that phenomenon on the polar maps as well, stress, rest. Well, what's, what are some other ways that we can identify this as an attenuation artifact? Well, one, do attenuation correction. And we'll talk about that later. But look at the gated images. And here you see that the anterior wall is moving just fine. If this were a scar, you would have an anterior wall motion abnormality. And in fact, in the vertical long axis image, is pretty cool. You can see this big photopenic defect. That's the woman's breast. And right adjacent to it is the decreased counts in the anterior wall. And you see that area moving and thickening normally. Okay. Here's another breast artifact but one that's completely different. Where is this woman's breast? Look at the breast shadow, way down there. So this lady has large pendulous breast, not over the anterior chest wall, but lying down over the abdomen, eclipsing the whole heart. But where is the thickest part of the breast? It's actually down here. It's actually overlying the inferior wall, not the anterior wall, but the inferior wall. You don't normally think of breast attenuation involving the inferior wall, but if you have a woman with large pendulous breast, absolutely that's the case. 
And here is the study in that patient. There's a decrease in counts in the inferior wall, again, that looks more marked in the resting image. Again, this pseudo-reverse distribution in the inferior wall. Here you go. And I don't think I have the gated image. I don't have the gated image there. Uh, but there was normal wall motion and wall thickening. Now, this inferior breast attenuation phenomenon occurs much more frequently when you are imaging patients in the upright position, let's say on the Digirad camera, the breasts are almost always pendulous and you, and you much, much more often encounter inferior breast attenuation. Also, like on the semen C-cam, when the patient is in the semi-recumbent position, the breasts are also more pendulous and you see this much more frequently. Another phenomenon with breasts, if you have very large, very dense breasts like you see in this patient, uh, Chris Hansen described this. This is a streak artifact. You see this streak coming off the apex? This is associated with breasts. And as he described it, is sort of using a 180 degree acquisition, we don't have complete reconstruction in all 360 degrees. I'm not sure if I entirely understand it, but you do have to remember that you can get streak artifacts due to the breasts. Shifting breasts. Now this is where we get into big problems. If the breast is in one position at stress, here you have like the first case example, here this breast is overlying the anterior wall. Here at rest, the breast has shifted down and is now overlying the whole heart, almost like the second case example. This is a big problem because you have a differential attenuation phenomenon. Why did this occur? Well, it could have been that the woman was wearing a bra for the stress and not for the resting study. That's a big technical mistake. The technologists always need to instruct the patient to be wearing exactly the same clothing at stress and rest. We prefer to have the patients not wear a bra and wear a hospital gown or a very loose fitting clothing to let the breast be more pendulous because with a bra, the breasts become thicker and more dense and create more severe artifacts. So our preference is no bra. Uh, here is the resulting problem, is here at stress with the breast overlying the anterior wall, we have a rather discrete anterior defect. Here at rest, the defect now is more diffuse and actually now the breast lies more over the apex. So we put this with the polar map here, more anterior. Now at rest, the breast is down more apical. So we have a reversible anterolateral perfusion defect here, here. Is this ischemic or is this an artifact due to shifting breast? I have no idea and neither do you. And does the gated imaging help us? Absolutely not because gating will help differentiate a fixed defect, a scar versus an artifact. Stress-induced ischemia, absolutely not. If you have stress-induced ischemia, remember you're acquiring your images 40 minutes later. So any stress-induced dysfunction will have gone away. And so your function's gonna be normal. So it's not gonna help you differentiate ischemia versus artifact. So 
you are up the creek. And the important thing is that you note that the breast has shifted in the rotating projection images. So what do you do? You've got to reacquire the study. Either reacquire the entire study or else have the patient come back and reacquire the stress study and make sure that the breast is in the same position. Well, I said one of the reasons is that the patient, let's say, wore a bra at stress but not at rest. But that's not the most common reason for this shifting breast artifact. The difference is because of differences in arm position. If a, one acquisition is acquired with the patient's arm hyperextended, the breast will move way up over the anterior wall. But during the other acquisition, the arm has just moved down a little bit, not a lot. And you can feel this on your own pectoral muscle. The pectoral muscle relaxes and the breast moves down. So little changes in arm position can create big changes in breast position. So in this study that I showed you, I'll try to go back here. Whoops, here. All right. This was a single day rest stress protocol. Here's the resting study. Here's the stress study. So you see this and say, oh, we gotta, gotta do something. We gotta reacquire the stress study. What do you tell the technologist to do? Well, one, be sure that the patient's bra is off. And secondly, relax the arm a little bit. So the breast is going to move down over the whole heart like it is here. So you've got to be creative. And sometimes when you do this, you have to try two or three more times or else the patient has to come back for an entirely new study. So this is a big problem and a very serious artifact. If you have never reacquired a study because of shifting breast position, I will guarantee you, you have read false positive studies. Diaphragmatic attenuation. In the rotating projection images, you should always try to identify the left hemidiaphragm. And you almost always can. It's a little curvilinear photopenic shadow that normally lies just inferior to the inferior wall of the left ventricle. If it's inferior to the inferior wall and you see the inferior wall all the way back to the base, you don't have any problem with inferior attenuation. You are home free. But if you've got something like this, or in this case you get the spleen and maybe the left lobe of the liver, and above it this photopenic shadow, that's the left hemidiaphragm, you are going to have an inferior attenuation problem. So always ascertain the position of the left hemidiaphragm from your rotating projection images. And almost always you can do that. So here we have a situation in that patient. Looks like we have decrease in the inferior wall, sort of questionable defect by quantitative analysis. What do we do to get around that? One, we could do attenuation correction. If you don't have attenuation correction, look at your gated images. And here you see that inferior wall is moving and thickening normally. Almost surely that's a diaphragmatic attenuation artifact. Another thing that you can do is you can do a prone spect acquisition. Flip the patient over on their stomach. This will cause the heart to sort of shift upward and it will push the diaphragm down. It virtually does separate 
the heart from the diaphragm. Here's this case, not the same case, but a different case. Is this decrease in the inferior wall a real perfusion defect or is it diaphragmatic attenuation? With the patient prone, you can see it comes back, it's diaphragmatic attenuation. Okay, attenuation correction, speaking of, it's very helpful. Uh, this is a non-attenuation corrected study. See this defect in the inferior wall? Is it real or is it an attenuation artifact? This is attenuation correction with CT. It completely goes away. Obviously, an attenuation artifact. So it works quite well. What are the potential problems with attenuation correction? Uh, this is a landmark study from Michael O'Connor uh, where he uh, looked at various attenuation correction uh, commercially available systems using gadolinium-153 scanning line sources. And uh, he compared this with x-ray attenuation correction. This happens to be on the GE Hawkeye and also with a PET scan. And this is with phantoms. So these are the various gadolinium-153 attenuation corrected studies. This is a normal phantom. Well, look at this one. Looks like defects here and here. Here's a big defect here, defect here, defect here, defect here, defect there, defect there. So gadolinium line sources don't work very well. Uh, also, they're expensive to replenish. They have low energy, and therefore, when you most need them in a very obese patient, there's not enough photon flux from gadolinium to get through and do the attenuation correction. So it's sort of like when you need it, it doesn't work. So gadolinium line sources are still around, but they are not nearly as effective as x-ray attenuation correction. What's the problem with x-ray attenuation correction? Well, one of the big ones is misregistration. One of the positives with gadolinium is you did what was called an interleaved acquisition. You would do your emission scan, and then when the camera was at that stop, you'd put a little window over, and then you would do the transmission scan. Then the camera would move, and you did a transmission emission scan, so on, so on, and so forth. So the images were pretty much registered. The transmission and emission images were registered sort of all the way around the patient. But with CT attenuation correction, you generally do the emission scan first, and then you hope the patient hasn't moved, and you tell them to be now real steady, and then you do the transmission scan. Well, you'd think that, you know, that the patient was in the same spot, but that doesn't always happen. The patient has moved. As you well know, the patients can move. So you wind up getting misregistered images. Here, you can see the emission scan and the transmission scan are misregistered. Now, fortunately, software programs allow you to re-register these images, and they work fairly well, although not perfectly. And here's the transaxial slice. Here you see the misregistration. So that's one of the problems. Another problem is truncation. If you don't get the heart in the field of view, either for the emission scan or the transmission scan, particularly the transmission scan, you truncate pretty much part of the heart. So you're not attenuating, attenuation correcting all of the heart. Here's a scan where we had CT truncation. You're just missing part of the anterior wall. So watch out for that. The biggest problem with attenuation correction, at least the way it is currently, 
is that it tends to overcorrect subdiaphragmatic activity. You know that we've talked about this whole issue of Compton scatter into the inferior wall that creates this hot inferior wall. Well, that's a problem. But think about it. Soft tissue is actually working for you. Here you can imagine this patient with this big protuberant abdomen, all this soft tissue here. Well, the soft tissue is actually attenuating all this subdiaphragmatic activity. So it's actually helping you. It's creating scatter, but it's also attenuating it. Well, you do attenuation correction and you essentially strip away all this abdominal soft tissue. So now there's more subdiaphragmatic activity and more Compton scatter into the inferior wall. And so here's an example. This is a non-AC study, which actually looks pretty good. And here we have the AC study that creates a hot inferior wall. Well, remember the normalization problem. The image gets normalized to the hot inferior wall, and now it looks like you've got a new defect in the anterior wall. So this is a big problem with attenuation correction, is overcorrecting the inferior wall and creating a de novo anterior defect. All right, a little over time, but that's okay. Uh, let's just finish up with some non-coronary disease that creates artifacts. Okay, left bundle branch block, you're most familiar with this. Basically what happens is with left bundle branch block, the heart contracts asynchronously, the septum, lateral wall, septum, lateral wall. Remember the coronary arteries fill during ventricular diastole. So since the septum contracts early and is out of sync with the rest of the ventricle, it misses out on its big opportunity for coronary perfusion during ventricular diastole. And so you do have a slight decrease in perfusion to the septum with left bundle branch block. At low heart rates, this is trivial. But at higher heart rates, where septal diastole or where diastole occupies a larger percentage of the left ventricular cycle, this decrease in perfusion becomes more marked, not to a point where it's clinically relevant, but where we can see it in our perfusion scans. So with left bundle branch block at high heart rates, we have a relative decrease in perfusion of the septum at stress as compared to rest, and we can get a reversible perfusion defect. Here's a study. This is a patient with left bundle branch block who exercised to a heart rate of about 165. And here we see this diffuse decrease in perfusion to the septum normalizes or nearly normalizes in the resting scan. Looks like a reversible defect. Note that it spares the apex. What do you do to get around this? Well, stress the patient without increasing the heart rate. That means pharmacologic vasodilatation with dipritamol, adenosine, or regadenosine. And here you see this problem is completely avoided. One word of caution. Sometimes, even with pharmacologics, and don't use dobutamine because that's going to increase the heart rate. One word of caution. Occasionally, the patient's heart rate increases with pharmacologic stress because their blood pressure drops, they're anxious, or whatever. So if your resting heart rate's 65 and your stress heart rate goes up to 120, you still may get a septal perfusion abnormality even with pharmacologic stress. So always look at the peak heart rate with pharmacologic stress. Another variant that creates a lot of problems 
is a long membranous septum and a short muscular septum. Notice in this patient that there's this big defect at the base of the septum, and even the rest of the septum appears decrease in count density. Well, this is a normal variant. Where this becomes tricky is in the short axis slices where you, as you go to the base, you see this defect. Well, of course, you, all, you can't just look at the short axis slices. You've got to look at the whole part. But if you just look at these, it looks like the patient's got a fixed basal septal defect. Well, why isn't this a scar? Well, it could be, but it's unlikely. The basal septum has a dual blood supply from both the LAD and the RCA. So it would be very unlikely to create an isolated infarct of the base of the septum with that area having a dual blood supply. It's almost always due to membranous septum. But it can create artifacts, and here by quantitative analysis, of course, this departs from the, quote, normal file. Myocardial hypertrophy. This is particularly problematical because many patients who come in for myocardial perfusion scans have hypertension and LVH. So this we encounter all the time. Well, what happens is the entire myocardium hypertrophies, but the septum hypertrophies to a greater degree, not with IHSS, just with concentric hypertrophy. And so therefore, there's more myocardium and thus more tracer concentration. So the septum becomes hot and the rest of the ventricle, anterior, lateral, and inferior walls become relatively cold. This is tricky. Is the septum normal and all that's abnormal or is that normal and the septum's hot? Sort of a tough call. If you do quantitative analysis, this can be very difficult because you're normalizing to the septum and everything else appears abnormal. So it looks like the whole heart is scarred rather than the septum. Well, one of the ways to differentiate this from scarring is to look at your wall motion and your volume. If you had myocardial scarring of all this myocardium, you'd have a dilated ventricle and big time wall motion abnormalities. But with left ventricular hypertrophy, these areas are actually contracting normally, and if anything, the septum is actually might be hypokinetic because of the hypertrophy and a restrictive abnormality. So your wall motion helps you in differentiating a hot septum from scarring of the rest of the ventricle. Apical variations. Uh, for those of you who do CT coronary angiography, you see the myocardium at the apex, and sometimes it can be just wafer thin, only one or two millimeters. Generally, with nuclear imaging, we don't have good enough resolution to resolve that very thin apex, plus the images are beating, and so the apex gets blurred. But sometimes we can resolve the apex, and we see this little apical defect. It tends to be a little cleft at the apex. Notice that sometimes in the resting images, it's not as well resolved. Why is that? Because if you're doing a low-dose rest, high-dose stress protocol, you're generally using a smoother filter for your resting images, so the images get more blurred, and you don't have as good a resolution to see this little apical cleft. So it's a tricky artifact because it can look slightly reversible. But just by the characteristics itself, 
of being a cleft-like marked defect, you should be able to identify this as the apical thinning. Here you see it here. The other thing you do is, of course, look at the wall motion. And that area is moving and thickening normally. And so you therefore identify it as an artifact. Lastly, the 11 o'clock defect. We see sometimes right up here at 11 o'clock and also down here at 7 o'clock a cleft-like small defect. This is due to the insertion site of the, it's not due to, it's associated with the insertion site of the free wall of the right ventricle. If you display your images in hot iron or if you display them in black and white, you can see the right ventricle and where the anterior and inferior free walls insert. Immediately posterior to the, that insertion site, you see these cleft-like defects. We still, after all these years, we really don't know what these defects are due to. It's not a groove, it's not the coronary groove, it's not attenuation by the right ventricle. We're still not sure what they're due to, but they're there. And just recognize them as normal variants. So I will stop here, about 10 minutes overtime, but we'll make that up uh, in the rest of the talk. So.